So Joseph, so horribly wronged, had been betrayed by his brothers, sold off in slavery, ends up in Egypt, given to Potiphar, sold to Potiphar as a servant, um, and then uh, falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife, and then imprisoned. You see at the end of chapter 39 at verse 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his, meaning Joseph's doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. So profound blessing of the Lord in the midst of trouble. Um, I'm just going to sort of throw this out right in the beginning because I commonly hear people saying and read commentators that are saying, you know, we should look at Joseph because, you know, here's an example in these profound struggles of a guy who just keeps his chin up and never gets discouraged and doesn't go through. I don't see that. Okay, There are a number of things throughout this. There's certainly a profound divine example that Joseph demonstrates for us, but he's human. And we do see his expressions of frustration. We do see his expressions of difficulty. He keeps his eyes on the Lord, and the Lord blesses him through the process. But he's as human as the next person. He has to go through these things. So now he's in prison. In chapter 40, verse 1, it came to pass, after these things, that the butler and the baker, the candlestick maker is not here, but the, the king of Egypt uh, offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Now, it, it's probable, especially as we look at this, that there was some kind of conspiracy against the king, that uh, perhaps somebody was trying to poison the king. The butler is the man who oversees all that is done that comes in direct contact from the household of Pharaoh with Pharaoh. See, he's the filter by which everything goes through. Personal assistant sort of man. Baker, obviously the man who's in charge of all food preparation. So these two men are now in bad favor and being imprisoned. And uh, there's actually going to be an execution before we're all done with this. Verse 2, Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief Baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in prison, the place where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and notice this, it says, and he served them so that they were in custody for a while. Joseph served them. He didn't lord over them. He didn't abuse them. He didn't take advantage of them. He was their servant. Now, that's something biblically that the Lord commands of his servants. Those who have places of authority are supposed to be men and women who serve. They don't lord over others. Specifically, Jesus says to Peter in the New Testament that his servants will not lord over those that they serve. They will lead by example. 
And unfortunately, we do not see that in the church commonly. We see those who have positions of authority acting as worldly as anyone else, demanding that people have respect for their position, their voice, their opinions. It is by example that we're called to lead. That through our behavior, people would be able to fall. Difficult to not respect a man who serves you in a circumstance such as this. Verse 5, Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream, both of them. Each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with its own interpretation. Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. Now, that would more accurately be translated troubled. It isn't even so much that they're, you know, looking forlorn. They're in prison. Of course, they're going to be sad. You know, there's, there's a trouble to their countenance that tells him there's something bigger than just the incarceration. So he asked Pharaoh's officer who were with them in the custody of his Lord's house, saying, Why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, We each had a dream, and there is no interpretation of it, meaning we don't have any interpretation of it. We can't gain any understanding. So Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Now, I underlined, do not interpretations belong to God. Because in, again, our modern church, there is very often the idea that whatever supernatural occurrence is going on is because the person is supernatural. You know, if there's healing happening within a certain church or ministry, immediately somebody wants to name the ministry after themselves and attribute the healing to themselves. You know, Will Cass's evangelistic healing ministry. That's not the case. You know, if we're evangelizing, it's on behalf of the Lord. If there's healing taking place, it's because the hand of the Lord is performing the healing. You know, in and of ourselves, what are we? We're vessels, clay pots, by which the Lord delivers His work. We're just we're just an empty vessel. That that's truly what we should be in our process. And the servants of the Lord are very faithful to let those they serve understand that. We see that all through the Scripture. You don't, you don't ever see someone claiming the power, the servants of God claiming the power. You do see the false prophets claiming the power to themselves throughout the Scripture. Those that falsely represent the Lord claim the power as their own and for themselves. You can look through all of the prophets and they attribute all of their power, all of their insight, all of their work to the Lord. In the book of Revelation, as John is receiving that divine message from the Lord about all that lies ahead of us in the future, he's before an angel and he falls down at the magnificence and the power that he's seeing. And the angel stops him and says, do not do that. I'm a servant just like you. He puts himself on the same level as John. That's quite remarkable. You know, an angelic being who's giving all of this insight to not only John, but to all of us that would ever read that revelation. That angel says, no, no, I, I'm a servant on the same caliber as you. 
I, I just obey the Lord. Those that truly serve the Lord understand this. Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell them to me. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream, a vine was there, and in the vine were three branches. It was as though it budded. Its blossoms shot forth. Its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. And I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, meaning exalt it, and restore you to your place. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. But remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. Mention, excuse me, and make mention of me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this house. Now, here's what I'm talking about, about the frustration. Okay, because commonly, again, it's portrayed like Joseph just glides through these challenges and we should all just follow his example. Listen to the frustration in this expression. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews and I also have done nothing here that I should be put into the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream and there were three white baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. The birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Not as pleasant an interpretation as the previous dream, but accurate. Now, this uh, lifting off, I don't want to confuse us or muddy the waters, but it would seem more accurately to be lift you up by your head, okay? Hanging. And in verse 22, we're going to see that, that he's actually executed by hanging. There are those that want to insist that he was decapitated, and I guess we could make that discussion, but it seems that he was, either way, he's executed is the point, okay? So however we want to quibble over the words, it is the idea that he was put to death. Prophecy. Daniel, uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, um, you know, the New Testament prophets, when they prophesy for the believer, it's encouragement. For the unbeliever, it can be fear and intrepidation. Now, uh, you think about this for a minute. Um, if you're Paul and you're being told that you're going to be beaten and you're going to be imprisoned and you're going to go through trials and hardships, that might strike your heart as a fearful thing. Paul doesn't take it that way. Paul says, I know all of that lies ahead of me and you just dwelling on this as believers, particularly in Galatia, you're, you're just breaking my heart. 
over this. I know what lies ahead of me, and I'm not afraid of it. I'm paraphrasing. Okay. For the believer, when the prophecy comes, it isn't a fearful thing, even if the world looking on might see it and think that. I, I caution us because there are those within Christianity that always want to preach their prophetic message in a gloom and doom manner. Okay. If, if we hear that the world is going to end tomorrow, okay, for us, that's a good thing. Okay? We get to be in the presence of the Lord. You know, if your death is imminent, like, wow, you know, the struggles in life are done. You know, if you are going to face execution and eternal judgment, that's a terrible thing. And gauge. Uh, when you're listening to people who insist, oh, I have the gift of prophecy, and what is it creating fear in you, or is it creating encouragement? Uh, that's the first thing I look for. Somebody starts saying, oh, thus says the Lord, and what they're saying creates fear, I automatically just heart, start hitting the reject button. I don't need to listen to this. You know, you know the, the United States and all these terrible things, are just I'm not concerned about that. God is in control. Let all of those things unfold. Our king has never been unseated from his throne in all of eternity. And we don't have to live that way. Particularly 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, from the New Living Translation. Paul says to the church at Corinth, One who prophesies strengthens others, that's believers, encourages them and comforts them. Okay, even if it's a potent, powerful message, what you're going to be able to derive from a prophetic message that the Holy Spirit, you're a child of God, right? You should not, as a parent, look to create fear and intrepidation in your child, even if you have to correct them sternly, right? They shouldn't walk around under a cloud of threat from their parents. That's abusive, right? As sinful human beings, we may conduct ourselves that way, but our perfect heavenly father is never going to conduct himself that way. He's not going to send his Holy Spirit to deliver a message to you where you walk around for, you know, ever under a cloud of condemnation. That's the voice of our enemy. He is the accuser of the brethren. Okay, in Joseph's struggle, it, it, it has a very direct application. He's in very trying circumstances. But the Lord is not ruining him, crushing him, and destroying him. God intends all of these things for good. And we're going to see that work out in the end. You know, believers, uh, you know, they, they should not have the same reaction to God's judgment. We know God is good, just, and right. Uh, Revelation, just look at this really quick. Chapter 16, I have the verses lied out, beginning in verse 4. It says, Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs, and they became blood. This is a fearful message, but follow it. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You're righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. For it is 
their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. See, that's the confession of the believer. Even when we see the fearful you know, wrath of God that is to come, as believers we can say, God is good, just and right. It doesn't create in us the same reaction as it does in unbelievers. So, back in Genesis, at verse 20 of chapter 40, the butler being innocent, the baker's guilty, it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief butler and the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And he hanged, and there it is, the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Thank God that the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because even when the world should remember us, our work, our message, our ministry, and people's lives, when they forget, reject, forsake, God does not. He's faithful. He keeps and carries on. Chapter 41, verse 1. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years. When it says that this butler forgot about Joseph, I mean it's a complete forgetting. Two full years. That Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat. They fed the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. You know, he's disturbed by the dream. That would be disturbing. To, to have such a, we reread it and it's just sort of biblically poetic and whatever. Hey, you think about literally watching a cow devour another cow. That, that would be nightmarish. You know, bloody, gross, disgusting, drooling, rated R. It's going to lurch you out of your sleep. It's not a pleasant thing to, you know, see and experience and think about. Verse 5, then he slept and dreamed a second time. And suddenly there were seven heads of grain that came up on one stalk, plump and good. Now just pause for a moment there for explanation. If you're reading from the King James Version, it says, And he slept and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of corn came up on one stalk, rank and good. And, and people, you know, again, want to make divisions. There was a phrase regarding wheat because the head of the wheat looks like a corn stalk. So if you took the you know, ear of corn and opened up the wheat, it would look very similar to if you opened up an ear of corn. So they would say the ear of wheat or the corn of the wheat. That's why the King James interpreted it that way. It's referring to heads of grain on the wheat. So again, verse 5, he slept and dreamed a second time. Suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. 
the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all his wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. He's looking for all of his wisest counselors, those that have you know, mystical and magical insight. He, he's trying to gain an understanding of what he just experienced. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day. I'm, I'm remembering when I was in trouble with you. Pharaoh was angry with his servant, verse 10, and put me in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker. We each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of our dream, meaning it came true. What we dreamt came true. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. Well, he didn't really, did he? It was the Lord who interpreted those dreams, but that's his understanding. To each man he interpreted according to his dream, and it came to pass just as he interpreted for us. So it happened, he restored me to my office, and he hanged him on a tree. He's referring to Pharaoh as having restored me, the butler, and executed the baker. You know, he interprets our dreams for us. That's what this butler says of Joseph. Those that are unsaved cannot fully understand the things of the Spirit, you guys. You know, we try to explain and try to lend them insight. You know, Joseph was very careful to explain to this butler and this baker that it's God who has these powers, and he doesn't have the understanding that he needs to. You know, very often people you know, will attribute the work of God to us unnecessarily. Right? We share the Lord with them, and we want them to know the Lord, and what they know is we know the Lord. So when they need prayer, rather than going to the Lord themselves, they come to us. Right? Perhaps you've experienced this. They, they look at us as the conduit. Take advantage of that, okay? When they come, try not to be frustrated. Just pray for them and continuously direct them to the Lord. You know, they can have unfettered access themselves, right? You know, they don't have to wait for God's hand, move, providence, work in their lives until they get in contact with you. That would that would be horrible if we all had to, you know, look for another human being to be that funnel. God removed all of those barriers, right? There was a priesthood. There was a religion. There was an organization. And Jesus Christ moved all of that out of the way, ripped the veil in the temple in order that men and women could have direct access to himself. They're, they're not going to understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. As much as you preach to certain people, they're not going to understand. Don't be frustrated with that, right? They need the Holy Spirit living in them before they're going to be capable of those things. 41 verse 14, And then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. They brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And shaved, and he shaved, changing his clothes, and came to Pharaoh. That was 
uh, culturally the only way that a person was going to gain access to Pharaoh. And the Pharaohs wore wigs. They shaved all of the hair from their bodies. The, the biggest reason was hygiene, uh, the lice and insects. They were trying to prevent that from being part of their body, any of those parasites. So they would commonly be clean-shaven. And if you're going to be in the presence, you can't come as some hairy, bearded prisoner into the presence of Pharaoh. So they dress him and send him in. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream. There's no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered and Pharaoh, saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. See, I'm not just dwelling on this unnecessarily. The scripture dwells on this concept. That this is not our power. This is not within our realm. I've been around many people who are not Christians, who are in touch with the spiritual realm, who insist these powers belong to them. I have certain gifts. No, you don't. If you do have some supernatural experience that you're able to know certain things and relay them, and it's not Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit that's giving you that information, if it is in fact supernatural, then you're in touch with the demonic. Anyone who has that capability, that's the first thing you want to know. Where are you getting this information? Because if they attribute it to anything other than Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, just find the exit. Seriously. Because they might be accurate some of the time. That's the biggest danger. And the rest is deadly poison. You don't want to consume their advice, counsel, guidance, supernatural wisdom. You want it to be pure, unadulterated from God. Daniel with King Nebuchadnezzar, had a similar conversation. Nebuchadnezzar had that dream, needed interpretation. Daniel chapter 2, looking at verse 27, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, cannot declare to the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar that what will be in the latter days, your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. And then Daniel gives the interpretation. It's from the Lord, not Daniel, not Joseph, not anyone else. 41.17, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I stood on the bank of the river, the Nile. Suddenly, seven cows came up out of the river, fine, looking fat, fed in the meadows. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor, very ugly and gaunt. Such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. The gaunt and ugly cows ate up the seven cows and the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I awoke. Also I saw in my dream, suddenly seven heads came up, one stalk, full and good. Then behold, seven heads withered, thin, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. The thin heads devoured the seven good heads. 
So I told this to the magicians. There was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what is about, what he is about to do, what God is about to do. God has given you insight and understanding. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven thin and ugly cows, which came up after them, are seven years. The seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do, what God is about to do. Okay, I've given you this reference many times. You've probably heard me put this forward. God hangs his credentials on prophecy. You want to know whether I'm God? You want to know whether other gods are gods? It's supernatural. Can they prophesy? Isaiah chapter 41, verse 21 begins God challenging the people of Israel and all of the false gods that they've been worshiping. He says, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing, and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. We get the impression especially from modern entertainment, that prophecy is very common, right? You know, everybody prophesies. You know, I mean, good grief, you watch Marvel comic movie now, and, you know, there's prophecies about this. It's stupid. As though comic book heroes had supernatural capabilities. As though every religion in the world just has always had its prophets. No, no, no. There's only one religion in all of human history that has had prophets and foretold the future. That is God and his servants and the Bible. And that's it. That's it. I've heard people say, oh, well, the prophecies in the Quran, which ones? Where? What are you talking about? There are none. The Quran doesn't foretell the future, right? The Shasta of the Hindus, it doesn't foretell the future. Only God's word. He hangs his credentials as being supernatural, as being deity, as being the only living God upon his ability to tell the future. That's, that's significant and important. And it's important that you understand it very thoroughly, right? Because the counterfeits diminish the value of the genuine, right? If, if we're walking around in a culture where everybody thinks, oh, all the religions prophesy. No, there's only one that does. That's ours. Ours alone. When you hear people claiming that their religion has had prophets, their religion has had visions and inspiration, ask them to tell you, what is the prophecy? When did it come true? What are you talking about? And what you'll find is they're stumbling and bumbling and don't know and don't have an answer. Right? How many people in the room, you can show your hand if you want to, have either said or 
heard people say, oh, the Bible, it's full of contradictions, right? Have you ever just said to somebody, name one? Have you said that? Have you confronted people with that? I always do. I have never had one person. I'm sure there are people out there that perhaps have something in their mind that they think is a contradiction. I have said that countless times to people. I have never had someone say, well, right here it says this, but then over here it says that. They always end up just fumbling and saying something, well, well that, that's what I've heard. That, that's what they've heard. So they're repeating something that they've heard. Okay? Look, I go too far with illustrations, but let, just indulge me for a moment, right? Have you ever heard that if a baby bird falls out of a nest, you should not pick it up and put it back in the nest? Because your scent is going to get on the baby bird, and then the mother is going to come back and reject that baby bird because the baby bird now smells like you. That's false. Pick the bird up and put it back in the nest. Birds have almost no sense of smell. I'm not making that up. Birds have almost no sense of smell. Mother birds are extremely grateful. We've taken surveys. But anyway, they, they care for their young. When the, when the bird is put back in the nest, they immediately care for the young. They don't reject their young based on There's all kinds of opinions out there that are based in lies. Lies. The public is full of opinions that are rooted in junk. Junk. The Word of God alone is supernatural, foretells the future, and is 100% accurate. Right? If we can diminish the value of the genuine by introducing the counterfeits, it undermines everything. Confront the counterfeits. That's our job. That's our job. We're the ones that are supposed to be out here checking the credentials of the truth. We're supposed to be the serious students. Back in Genesis 41, looking at verse 29. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after those seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will deplete the land, so the plenty will not be known in the land because the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. It was given to you twice so that you understand God has declared this thing as a being in existence. Nothing's going to change this course. This is how things are going to unfold. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. So generally speaking, the taxation of Egypt was around 10%. It got as low as 8, as high as 10. Historically, we know that. During this time, Daniel is saying the taxation should be increased to 20%. It's going to be so plentiful 
that the people won't even hardly notice that you're increasing the tax uh, to 20%. Secondly, the way this is written out, there's a humility in his description. He's not promoting himself into this job. He is saying, you're surrounded by capable people and you need to choose one of them in order to oversee this entire endeavor. It's going to be him in the end, but be very clear, he's not promoting himself into that position. The language is very clear about that. you got a whole bunch of guys, choose one of them and put them to work to make sure this all takes place. Let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh. And let them keep food in the cities, meaning around, not just in one central location. Then that the food shall be as a reserve for the land for seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt. The land may not perish during the famine. So the advice was good, notice this, in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. Right? That, that's significant. Because often when people are in a position of power and along comes this young upstart with all this new advice, usually people bristle and want to resist someone's good counsel. Instead, everyone recognizes the wisdom. Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God dwells? It is a capital S right there. Pharaoh recognizes this is not just a super sensitive spiritual guy. The capital S spirit of God is on this man. Just by interpreting the dream, he sees something in him. <clears throat> then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all the people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring. That's all of his authority. That's all of his bank accounts. That's every legal document. He just handed him his signature. You are allowed to sign any legal agreement in all of the land of Egypt with my full authority. Took the signet ring off his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put the gold chain around his neck, the amulet bearing the insignia and the authority. And he had him ride in the second chariot. So this is like, uh, you know, Air Force Two. I don't know how that works, but, you know, he, 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 it's the authority of the office of the Pharaoh, which he had. And they cried out before him, bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Not that he's going to abuse the power, right? We've seen him you know, very much serve those that he's been put in authority over. But the idea is, if you say a man can do something or can't do something, your authority is going to stick. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephnath Paniah. Now, little is known about the name. It likely means 
God speaks and he lives, meaning both things. God speaks and he is alive, and also God speaks and we live as a result of it, is the idea that's there. Both things are inferred, referring to God's word coming through Joseph. He gave him a wife, or gave him as wife, Azaneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of Onan. This should not be confused with Potiphar, who he was previously employed by. Uh, priest of On, or On, depending how you want to pronounce that. The word Kohen is what's translated on, uh, signifies both prince and priest. So for the Egyptians, if you were a prince, then you were a priest. It was a spiritual and a uh, you know a governmental role. They were one and the same. So this uh, you know priest of On is uh, over this uh, area of On. On is uh, rendered as Hyopolis in uh, you know the city of the sun by the Septuagint and other ancient texts, so it's very likely that Potiphar was the administrator of the territory or providence under Pharaoh's authority. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. That's likely to build the granaries at this point and appoint leadership to receive the grain into those locations. So verse 46, Joseph was 36 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly so that he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities, so distributed around Egypt. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea, until he stopped counting, was immeasurable. And Joseph was born two sons before the years of famine came. From Azaneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. Now this is significant. For God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. The pain of loss from being sold off into slavery and all of the false accusation and imprisonment, God has caused me to forget those things. This is what I mean. I find it somewhat inappropriate to say that you know these things didn't touch Joseph. They didn't affect him. He, he rose above them and, and wasn't burdened by them. I, I'm hearing the frustration. I'm hearing the difficulty of challenge that this man went through when he's saying, now that I've been given these things, now that God has given me this authority, now that God has given me this son, he's allowed me to forget the pain of my past. That means there's pain in the past, that he's gone through these things. Well, we don't read about Joseph complaining or questioning God, but there were things he needed God's help to forget in the process. We're not less of a Christian if we find ourselves 
in despair. I think that's very significant. You know, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4, Elijah has gotten that letter, right? Jezebel's going to kill him. And he flees into hiding, and it says, Elijah went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die, and said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Filled with the despair to the point of desiring death. That's significant. Elijah, one of the greatest prophets. Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 8, said, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. We were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, and notice this, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Despair is a real part of life. And at times we're going to experience it. You're not less of a believer if you're going through that. Those of us that don't sink into that kind of depression and difficulty, be careful of your brothers and sisters who may be struggling. You know, what did Jesus say? You know, mourn with those who mourn, right? If they're in despair, join them there. Just love them, encourage them, pray for them. You know, shoot them a text message, send them an email, lift them up. They're, they're profoundly in need of it. Joseph is expressing his difficulty. 41 verse 52, the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. The fruitfulness, right? He wasn't fruitful previously. He was imprisoned and suffering. Now there's a fruitfulness in his life, and he makes mention of the affliction that he went through. I mean, Joseph's not the guy who, when you talk to him, he's like, what affliction? Was it, uh, we're thinking, oh, I didn't notice. You know, yeah, I guess things were bad. That's not who he is. He knows what he's been through, and now God is lifting that. Then the seven years of plenty, which were in the land of Egypt, ended. Verse 54, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, the famine was in the land's but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do. Now, this statement in verse 56, the famine was over all the face of the earth. The critics have said, Oh, that's an exaggeration. There's never been a worldwide famine like this. And wouldn't you know it? archaeological evidence has begun to be discovered that there was a worldwide famine. And it did happen during this period of time. And more and more and more evidence is emerging that it was a worldwide famine. And that Egypt was the only source of sustenance for the entire world. Think about this, you guys. If Joseph hasn't gone through this, if Joseph isn't imprisoned, if Joseph isn't there to interpret 
this dream, then the seven years of plenty come, and Pharaoh and all of his henchmen waste all of that abundance, and then the world has nothing when it's about to starve to death. Joseph has to go through the difficulty in order to save, potentially, as far as we understand from this passage, the entire world's population. Remember that the next time you're going through a challenge. You never know why until the outcome takes place. The famine's over the face of the whole earth. Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold. He didn't give. He sold to the Egyptians, and the famine became severe in the land. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in the land. God's divine hand of providence, working even through the most challenging of circumstances. When we are faced with the difficulties of life, even when it causes us to despair, Joseph is a great example. Look to it. Let the Lord comfort your heart and know God is good. He's not trying to destroy you, right? Wasn't that the complaint of the nation of Israel? They were in captivity, brought out of Egypt. Now they're in the wilderness. And what's their accusation against Moses and God? You brought us out here to kill us. God's very angry with that. Very angry with a false accusation against him. We may despair. We may struggle. Be filled with doubt and intrepidation. But God doesn't change characteristics are always good. He is always trustworthy. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your great love and your work in our lives. I pray that as we spend these few minutes together as the service ends, you'd help us to minister to one another. That this message would sink into our hearts. That we'd be able to trust you and follow you. Lord, guide us as your children. Watch over us. Keep us until we're together again, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.